It's an honor to have been entrusted of, uh, by Taylor again to be preaching the word to you this morning. Uh, I'm eager to see what God has for us. For our text, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, like you heard Nathaniel read. Uh, it's in 1 Corinthians, which is a book, a letter originally written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, and in this passage, chapter 10, Paul's essentially building on an argument that he's been making to the Corinthians since really chapter 8. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul begins, you, might, you could even glance if you're looking at a Bible, you can glance. He begins by saying, now concerning, what does he say? Concerning food offered to idols. Paul begins to talk about idolatry as it, as it, as it uh, relates to food. And he's addressing the question of how the Corinthians should interact with this food that's been offered to idols. Both meat that's been sacrificed in the Jewish temple, in Jewish temple worship, and also meat that's been sacrificed in other pagan religions in the cultural kind of cultic festivals. And Paul begins in chapter eight by agreeing with something that the Corinthians probably wrote about in their letter to him, which Paul has spent this whole letter responding to. Um, and he agrees that um, really meat itself, regardless of how it's been killed, who it's been offered to is neither here nor there. He says in verse eight of chapter eight, we're no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do. And so Paul agrees with them that they're free in Christ to eat it. But Paul tells them to take great care with their freedom lest in exercising their freedom, they cause a weak brother to stumble. And then for the most of chapter nine, Paul digs into this idea of freedom and giving up freedom for the sake of others. He implores with the Corinthians to see freedom as he does, not as something to hold on to and use for your own benefit, but as something to lay down for the sake of others that they might come to know God. And then at the end of chapter nine, Paul, which is right before our text, Paul includes this kind of interesting metaphor that almost seems like a non sequitur. Um, almost seems like it's coming out of nowhere. Paul is talking about food offered to idols, and then he compares the Christian life with running a race. You might remember from last week, running a race in such a way that you receive the prize of this imperishable wreath, which of course is eternal salvation, a life with God in heaven forever. And so what is Paul talking about there? What, what he's talking about in that little metaphor is essentially setting the stage for what he's talking about in chapter 10. I would say that you could probably even bump chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10, back to 24, uh, verse 24 in chapter 9. Uh, we know by now that Paul, Paul cares deeply about unbelievers, right? that laying aside freedom that might get in the way of reaching unbelievers with the gospel uh, is important. But just as important for Paul, as we see here, is the Corinthians themselves. Right? He's been talking about do this for the sake of others, do this for the sake of others. And here, Paul zooms in and says, you're important to me too beneath the Corinthians questioning, right? beneath their insistence that they're free to eat whatever they want, whenever they want to, wherever they want to, Paul senses the real issue. See, even though they wrote to him talking about freedom, Paul digs to the heart of it and says, you're talking about freedom, but the real issue here is idolatry. It's not just that the culture around you is idolatrous, Corinthian Christians. It's that this idolatry is seeping its way into the church, unbeknownst to the Christians because they're living carelessly. You see, if, you're, if you enjoy something that you're free to enjoy, then that's one thing. Right? But if you begin to love that thing, and you begin to worship that thing, then all of a sudden you're no longer free. You've become enslaved to that thing. And that is idolatry. The fact that the Corinthians are having such a hard time setting aside these freedoms points Paul to the fact that these freedoms have become no longer freedoms. They become idols. And underneath Paul's words here 
is the fact that really this is the deeper issue with all of humanity, idolatry, our tendency to idolatry, um, and it must be reckoned with. And I believe this passage is crucial for us, of course, in 21st century Houston. Right? It's true that Paul is talking about a specific kind of idolatry here, meat offered to idols in cultic festivals. And that's something that you and I in this room probably don't struggle with, much less have any, you know, we have no context for it. Um, but beneath his rebuke of this practice, I think Paul's words hold a special and important weight for us today. So here's my plan for this morning. I wanna work through the text in a couple of sections and see what God has for us. Let's dig in. Verse one, Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Here, Paul begins uh, with referring to a story that the Corinthians were uh, quite undoubtedly familiar with, and you might be familiar with it too. Paul mentions our fathers, right? Ancient Israel, uh, uniting the Christians in Corinth with God's people throughout time. And he says, they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What's Paul talking about here? The Exodus, right? The deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. It's a seminal event in the Bible. Happens very near the beginning of the Bible, beginning of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. Um, the, the God's people are in slavery. They cry out to God for help and God sends Moses to deliver them out of slavery. And Moses, as Moses led them out of Egypt, God in the form of a cloud hid them from the Egyptians who are pursuing them. And then God opened a way through the Red Sea, separating the waters from the waters so that, the, so that God's people could escape from the Egyptians by walking through this sea on dry land. It's an amazing story. And then you might remember what happens. All there was on the other side of the Red Sea was a desert wilderness where they had no food and no water. And so God's people, after this incredible act of deliverance, grumbled. They complained to Moses who called out to God, and God provided for his people. He provided food and water. This is what Paul talks about in verses three and four. The spiritual food Paul's talking about is the manna which God rained down from heaven to feed his people. The spiritual drink that Paul talks about is the water that God caused to flow out of the rock when Moses struck it with his staff. Right. And what's Paul doing here in these opening verses? I think there's two things to note. One, in the language Paul uses, he is unmistakably, I think, drawing parallels between God's means of grace for his people back then and his means of grace for God's people in the present. Notice the words Paul uses. They were baptized into Moses, their deliverer, in the cloud and the sea. They were nourished with spiritual food and spiritual drink. What kind of language is this? That's sacramental language. Paul is connecting what God's people went through to baptism and communion, the two sacraments of the Christian church. And why is Paul doing this? I don't think that Paul is saying that these events literally constituted baptism and communion for God's people. That would, I think, be over-literalizing this passage. What Paul is doing, I think, is focusing on the real grace of God that these ancient Israelites received. The reason he's connecting these events with the Lord's Supper becomes clear as Paul moves on in the passage, particularly verses 14 through 22. That's the first thing I wanna point out, this, this sacramental connection. The second thing I wanna note though, takes us a little bit deeper. If we dig just a bit, we see that these first two details, right, the cloud and this passage through the sea point all the way back to the original creation of all things in Genesis chapter one. Track with me for a moment. As God hid his people from the pursuing Egyptians, he hid them in the form of a cloud. The image of this cloud hovering over Israel, protecting her, 
harkens back to that moment before the creation of the world when the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. And what did God have to do in order to allow his people to pass through the Red Sea? He miraculously separated the waters from the waters so that God's people could walk through on dry land. What did, the Holy, what did God do after the Holy Spirit's hovering over the waters? In creation, Genesis 1, he separates the water from the waters and brings up dry land. These images of creation, in other words, together with the language of baptism and spiritual nourishment, give us the sense that the Exodus event for God's people involved more than simply deliverance from slavery in Egypt. In the event of the Exodus, Paul is saying, God's people experienced new creation. This wasn't just releasing shackles. It was God truly recreating his people, not just delivering them, but also renewing them and providing for them intimately, physically and spiritually. Through the spirit, God provided them real physical food. But in addition to this physical nourishment, we also get the clear sense that there was real, real spiritual nourishment, the real presence of God nourishing, guiding, caring for his people in the wilderness. We see it in verse four, where Paul points at the spiritual rock from which they all drank and says, the rock was Christ. Much that could be said, there's, there's much that could be said about those words. The rock was Christ. I'll leave most of that to your own personal reading, but here's what I'll say. Throughout Paul's writings, Paul clearly seeks to show that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. God has always existed as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his plan has always been to have a people for himself through whom he would display, to whom he would display his glory and through whom he would display his glory to the world. That's always been God's plan. Paul is trying to explain to them that nothing has changed in the person of God, right? And so, what Paul is doing is he's pointing to our fathers, the ancient Israelites, and showing them with great intentionality that these ancient Israelites received great and special blessings, spiritual blessings directly from God. And he shows this for the sake of getting to what he says in verse five. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The NIV translation ends that verse with, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, which is probably a better, kind of more accurate translation because in this verse, Paul's quoting from what is probably the worst chapter in the whole Bible, uh, Numbers chapter 14, where it says, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this rebellious people into the land that God swore to give them, that God has killed them in the wilderness. This is God's people who God had so loved and provided for that he had delivered them from Egypt. He had given them the very real and precious promises that he had promised to him. They had seen God perform miracle after miracle, both to display God's power and also to display God's love and care for them. And even with all of this, they're so stiff-necked and rebellious that they rejected God's offer of grace and wound up being overthrown in the wilderness having failed to obtain the prize of inheriting the blessings of the promised land. So this entire generation, God says, you can't enter the promised land and they pass away in death. Numbers 14, it's a doozy. You should read it. Paul's point in bringing this up. Verse six, Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us, right, that we might not deliver, or excuse me, desire evil as they did. So Paul's made his point about the Israelites and now he turns and says to the Corinthians, these things happened as an example for you and for me so that we don't make the same mistake. 
Paul essentially gives the Corinthians a case study in what not to do, right? Kind of like if you took driver's ed as a young driver, they may have shown you a video, a very graphic video showing different types of terrible accidents with people being ejected through the windshield because they weren't, you know, buckled up or people drunk kind of getting into head-on collisions. And they show this video and then say, so don't do any of these things. And if you think about it, the Corinthians, with Paul's words, were probably kind of like me and every other 16-year-old driver in that class saying, of course, I'm never gonna do that. I'm not that dumb. And just in case the Corinthians were leaning back in their chairs thinking we're good, Paul drives down a bit deeper. Verses seven through 10, he gives a fourfold warning against doing these things that led to them being overthrown. What does he say? Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Third, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, verse nine, and we must not grumble as some of them did, verse 10. And it's clear, Paul says, these were not just little issues. These resulted in real crowds of Israelites being killed by the judgment of God. And the way that Paul words these things, it makes it clear that he has in mind specific things that are going on in Corinth. Look at verse seven. It says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Again, Paul's quoting here. He says, as it is written, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Another quite unfortunate chapter, Exodus chapter 32, uh, is, a, is a particularly low point for ancient Israel. Uh, if you remember where Exodus 32 falls in this story, God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He had, he had provided for them in the wilderness and he brought them before Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 32, this happens right after they receive the law from God, when God renews his covenant with him and says, I'm your God, you're gonna be my people, obey my commandments. It's this glorious moment in the history of God's people. And then while they're waiting for Moses to come back down off the mountain, you remember what they do. They get bored and they build a golden calf. They, they bring all their gold together. They build a golden calf, melt it down, erect this idol and say, these are your gods which delivered you from Egypt, worship these, worship these. God had just given them the 10 commandments and they immediately broke the first one. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. It's a pretty low point. And as it says in Exodus 32, when Aaron saw the cow, he built an altar before it. Aaron is Moses' right-hand man, leader of God's people while Moses was gone. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's what Paul is quoting. So he's comparing the situation at Corinth with what happened in the story of the golden calf. And it bears mentioning that that verse in Exodus very quickly, long before Paul is writing these words, became accepted in rabbinical traditions as being euphemistic language for a raucous festival. Right? Um, it was, it, they definitely had sexual undertones with the kind of drunkenness um, and partying, party spirit that was going on in, uh, in this season of idol worship. And you see, the point here is that the issue of meat, eating meat offered to idols in Corinth wasn't like you or me going into a halal market and buying halal beef. It wasn't like us going into a grocery store in Southwest Houston and buying kosher meat. Um, this is a totally different thing. It's not that the Corinthians were sitting and drinking Powerade at some interreligious picnic and then getting up to play a game of soccer. Right? That's not what was going on. From Paul's language here, from what we know of cultural studies of the time, the issue for which the Corinthians were insisting on their freedom wasn't just eating food. 
It was participation with these pagan cultic festivals and feasts, these worship gatherings, which were often characterized by drunken, drunkenness, over-relaxed kind of psychotic experiences that were often sexual in nature. So when we look at verse eight, we have some context. Not only are the Corinthians misusing sex in the ways that Paul has already addressed in this letter, but here they're being sexually immoral even in their idol worship. And look at verses nine and 10. Putting Christ to the test and grumbling are the two things that Paul points out here. These are, of course, references to the things that the wilderness generation of ancient Israel did for which they incurred judgment. Back then, they had insisted on their right to better food than the manna that God provided for them. It wasn't good enough for them. And so they put God to the test in their arrogance and God sent serpents to poison them. Also back then, they had grumbled in a different time. They had grumbled against God and against Moses for Moses rebuking them for their hard-headedness. And in their grumbling, God had judged them. The connection of these two things with what's going on in Corinth is pretty easy to see. The Corinthians were putting Christ to the test by insisting on their right to participate in these cultic festivals, despite the idolatry and sexual immorality involved. Just like the ancient Israelites said, we have a right to better food than this, God. The Corinthians said, we have a right to a more fun life, God. They're putting Christ to the test. And in their letter to Paul, they had evidently been complaining to Paul because Paul had said, don't participate in these things already. And they wrote back, grumbling to him, just like the Israelites had grumbled at their leader, Moses. Um, So all the while, Paul's pointing his readers back to the history of God's people, drawing connections with what's going on in Corinth as if to say, don't you see? You're doing the exact same thing. And listen, back in Corinth, they would have laughed at the suggestion they were doing something as outrageous as worshiping the golden calf at Mount Sinai. They were much more sophisticated than that. Right. Of course they wouldn't do it. These Corinthian festivals are different. They're, they're cultural experiences that are well-regarded. They, re, they were in first century Corinth. These were well-regarded festivals. Respectable people engaged with these events. And so the Corinth, Corinthians said, these are no big deal. Paul says, you're doing the exact same thing as God's people in the wilderness. And that brings us to verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is really an incredible verse followed by one of the most alarming warnings in all of the New Testament. And so let's start with verse 11, the incredible verse. Paul takes what he said back in verse six and expands it a bit, giving us something of a principle for how to understand the Old Testament, how to understand the Hebrew scriptures. There's so much that could be said about the phrase that refers to those of us uh, on whom the end of the ages has come. There's so much that could be said about that. I actually think that that could make a good kind of title for this whole letter or the whole of Paul's writings because Paul is emphasizing throughout his writings a right understanding of our place in redemptive history. We are truly those on whom the end of the ages has come. You might've heard it referred to as the already but not yet. Christ has already come giving us presenting for us the yes and amen to all of God's promises, providing full deliverance and redemption from sin. So Christ has already done that, but he has not yet returned, which means we're still living in a world marred by sin, waiting for his return and the ultimate renewal of all things. And so this is Paul's emphasis. Paul brings this up here, and that's really his emphasis over all of his writings. Um, And there's much that could be said about that, but I'll leave it at this. Paul's point here is saying this. He says, we live in a very privileged time compared to those who lived before Christ. 
We live in the era of fulfillment. And at the same time, we are to read the Old Testament as a book that instructs us. These things were written by God for our instruction to help us navigate this season, which Paul refers to as the end of the ages. Elsewhere, it's referred to as these last days, which includes Paul's day. It includes our day today, 21st century. In other words, we don't just make the best of the Old Testament reading the stories because they're nice to know, but they're really the book that belonged to God's old, you know, old covenant people. No, this is our book. The Old Testament scriptures are written for our benefit and we should read them knowing that. Therefore, our instruction. And why does Paul emphasize this? Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul's takeaway from the story of those who fell in the wilderness on account of their idolatry is not to say, whew, thank God we have Christ, that'll never happen again. Paul's takeaway is be careful so that this doesn't happen to you. Let me make three qualifications about this verse and talk about it a little bit more. First, it is clear that Paul has eternal salvation in mind here. Taking into account the context with falling here, being established as the opposite of receiving the prize at the end of a well-run race like Paul has just talked about. Um, Also, in in context with the example Paul gives of following with the ancient Israelites in the wilderness, which are clearly references to death as opposed to some sort of stumbling from which it's possible to recover. Paul clearly has in view a group of people who have received very great and special blessings from God, likely including intense spiritual experiences, and yet have given themselves over in their foolish pride to the pursuit of idols and have thus fallen from God's grace. First qualification. Two, if you hold to a doctrine of assurance, right, if, uh, a doctrine of perseverance of the saints, as I do, uh, this verse need not interfere with that doctrine. I wanna say that right now. We, need to, we, we know it to be true from elsewhere in scripture that those whom the father chooses and gives to the son will remain in his hand right? He will lose none of them. For the one who is truly united with Christ, nothing, neither height nor depth nor length nor width, all those things, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know that to be true. This verse doesn't interfere with believing in that. And three, the third qualification I want to make is this. Relatedly, it's important to note that while Paul's intention is to provoke a response in his readers, it's not to cause anxiety in us about whether or not we're chosen by God. It's not to cause anxiety in us about whether or not we are elect, which is a word you may have heard before. For one, that kind of worry would be absolutely unproductive. As Jesus says, don't be anxious about anything. Which one of you, by worrying, can add even an hour to his life? Be absolutely unproductive. No, Paul's intention is not for us to be worried about whether or not we're elect, but to exhort us to be earnest in our perseverance. Paul doesn't ever say, be afraid of not being chosen. What he says is live as though you are. Strive, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, strive to make your calling and election sure, which complements stuff that Paul says all over the place. He says, Paul says, run the race. He says, endure. His response is beloved, therefore flee from idolatry. He'll say in verse 14. His, his, His intended response is a call to action, not a call to anxiety. So that's the third, uh, qualification. So clearly in view for Paul is the fact that we have a part to play in receiving the grace that God offers to us and in persevering in the faith. And let me speak very carefully here. 
What Paul is getting at here is not unlike what Jesus was getting at when Jesus said, lay down your life and take up your cross and follow me. It's clear in the Bible that without the grace of God, we are dead in our sins, spiritually speaking. And dead people don't decide to just get up and start walking. They have to be brought from death to life from something outside of them, outside of them. This is the work of God and God alone. We play no role in bringing ourselves from death to life. Once we have been raised from death to life, however, and stay with me, it's clear that we are intended to be active agents in our relationship with God. Right after that passage in Ephesians 2, which you might be familiar with, where Paul talks about, it's a glorious summary. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. All that, he said, and then he says, but God, being rich in mercy, raised us up with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. So Paul, it's this glorious passage where Paul says, you are saved not by your own works, so that you can't boast in it, but totally by the grace of God. Right after that, Paul says in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to sit on the couch and do nothing. No, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we have walking to do, right? We are to take up our cross and follow Christ. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24. Once we're saved, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12. We're to make every effort, as the apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, brotherly love, all these good things. In other words, God did not design a puppet show wherein he just pulls the strings and we just stand doing nothing of our own volition. He created us as free beings because he created us to love him. He designed us to be active, engaged lovers of him, lovers of each other, willing and working for his good pleasure, even as he works in us to do so. Of course, we need to be very careful here. Most would agree that salvation itself, based on that Ephesians 2 passage, salvation itself is the work of God alone. Being brought into right relationship with God, brought from death to life. Most would agree with that. But with the issue of sanctification, which is what we're talking about here, the issue of the Christian life post the moment of salvation, there are large ditches that we could fall into on either side, to the right or to the left. On one side, which bears mentioning, even though this isn't what Paul is talking about in this particular text, it's possible for someone to think that once you're saved by the grace of God, you keep yourself in that state of grace by works. In other words, you're saved by grace and you're kept by works. And if you fail to do those good works, you then lose your salvation. That simply is not true. Just two verses from elsewhere in Paul. Galatians 3.3, he says, are you so foolish, Galatians? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, no, you're being perfected by the spirit. It's all started by God and finished by God. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So to think that you're saved by grace and then God leaves the rest to you is completely untrue. The other side, though, which I believe Paul is talking about in this particular text, is an error called antinomianism. You might not have heard of that word. It literally means no law. Anti is against. Namos is the Latin word, I think, Greek word for, for law, against the law. Right? Antinomianism is the belief that nothing matters. There's no law. Once you're saved, you don't have any, you are a totally passive recipient of grace and you have nothing to do, nothing matters. You can do whatever you want because God's in control anyway. Well, 
That is not true either. Based on this verse from a moment ago, Paul seems to be taking seriously the need to be live carefully and disciplined in the, in the context of life. Elsewhere through the Bible, like the verses I read just a few moments ago, Philippians 2, Matthew 6, 2 Peter 1, there's many things that we have been given to do in the New Testament, which make it clear that God's expectation for us is to play an active part in what he's doing. And it's that second error for Paul, this antinomianism, which I think is the one that the Corinthians are making. They think that since they possess knowledge, right, this kind of going back to the beginning of chapter eight, since they possess knowledge, since they know the truth about Jesus and the cross of God, since they've received the gospel by faith and are partaking of the sacraments, baptism of the Lord's Supper, gaining real spiritual benefits from God that nothing can take them down. That they're living as though they have right thinking, they're receiving grace from the sacraments, we're good, we can do whatever we want outside of that. And that's dangerous. In the face of that overconfidence, Paul speaks clear sobering words. He says, look at your ancestors. They had knowledge. They had the truth about God, exactly as God had disclosed it to them. They even had very real and special spiritual benefits from God, which Paul goes to lengths to describe for them. And still, many of them fell. Therefore, learn from their experience, which was written down for you, and take heed, lest anyone who thinks that he stands falls. In other words, as one commentator put it, Paul's imploring them to understand, uh, with them to understand that participation in spectacular spiritual experiences does not relieve the people of God from ethical responsibility. In fact, as we look back at this generation of our own fathers, we see that even with their participation in these spectacular experiences, it was through their complacency, self-will, and disobedience that many of them forfeited the privileges that they once shared. This is an eye-opening warning, and Paul doesn't mince words. That's the first point that I wanted to make this morning. Paul says, your father stumbled, and so can you, so take heed. Move on to point two, God is faithful, and he works through our faithfulness. This is, I think, going to be a two-point sermon. In verse 13, it's as though Paul knows that he just dropped a bomb on the Corinthians, right? He doesn't want to leave this word of warning as a threat without a word of comfort. Let me read what Paul says, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a beautiful verse. As one commentator puts it, it stands out like a rock between the warning of verse 12 and the strong prohibition that follows in verses 14 through 22 functioning both to continue the warning and to offer a word of assurance in the midst of warning and exhortation. So let's take this verse apart briefly. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. What's Paul saying here? I think at least two things. First, Paul's saying, take heart because the temptations that you, have been, that you, that you face have been temptations that have been faced by every human being in history. It's common to man. While the external manifestations of your temptations, right, your, the sins that you commit and you're prone to might look different, you're not worse off than anyone else in the world. Your struggles are not new and worse for you than anyone else. So take heart. <laughs> Second thing that Paul's saying is take heed because the temptations that have been faced by every other human being, including your fathers in the distant past, are present in your life too. And there are dangers that you too face. This is Paul saying clearly 
Don't look at the alcoholic and say, thank God that I'm not like this man. Don't look at the person who does a blatantly visible sin, commits a blatantly visible sin and think, man, thank God I'm not like that man. Because what you do in secret and what that man does in public are just as offensive before God and just as dangerous to your soul. So in that sentence, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. Paul gives both encouragement. He says, take heart. And he gives warning, take heed. And then he says this, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a truly incredible verse. It's probably been uh, one of the most encouraging, encouraging verses in the Bible throughout my entire Christian life, especially in the past few years. Paul's giving them, he's just given them a warning against falling away. And then he says this, says God is faithful. Lest we take Paul's warning and misunderstand what he's getting at, falling into a downward spiral of anxiety, self-deprecation, self-doubt, maybe I can't do it. Paul yanks us back away from thinking about ourselves and our works and points us to what is truly our only hope, God's faithfulness. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand just as he wants us to understand that while what we do is important, while we should work hard to be faithful, to be obedient, to run the race so as to win the prize, all of that is useless unless it's predicated on the most important thing of all, God's faithfulness to you. As I read earlier, Paul says in, First Corinthians, or excuse me, in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is the one who will bring all of these things to completion. And as we read almost every Sunday morning during our confession time, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But just as we see in that verse, 1 John 1, 9, God's faithfulness, we see, we see something about God's faithfulness. We see that it is intentional and it is relational. God doesn't just forgive everyone their sins. That's, what, that's not what John is saying in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive. We have a part to play in this relationship that God has invited us into. While time and again, we see in the Bible how God remains faithful even when we are not, which we shouldn't forget. We also see clearly that God's design, his desire for our life, the reason he saves us from death to life and brings us into a relationship with him is so that his faithfulness to us can exercise itself out, work itself out through our faithfulness back to him and the covenant relationship that he has established by his grace. So here in 1 Corinthians 10, we see something similar. Verse 13, God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's something that we have been left to do. First, we see that God has promised not to let us be placed in a situation for which we're unprepared. You've probably heard that a thousand times. God won't put me past, you know, I don't know how people say it. God won't put me in front of anything that I can't handle, whatever. Uh, Sorry, this is the verse that that is based on. Um, God will never allow you to be tempted beyond which, uh, beyond the point to which you're able to resist it, to escape from it, to endure it. The next thing we see in this is that it is evident that we will be called upon to endure and we should be prepared for such. The Christian life, in other words, is not a walk in the park, but it's a race to be run, straining onwards, striving to endure the trials that are sent our way by way of temptation, always knowing that even when a temptation comes our way and seems impossible to resist, 
what Paul says here is important. God always provides a way of escape. Don't ever say I had no control over it. God always provides the way of escape because God is faithful. One of the ways that God's faithful, faithfulness manifests itself in your life, in other words, is to set you up to be successful in your pursuit of faithfulness. God is not like the parent who does his kids' projects all through their life so that by the time the kids grow up, they have, they're totally unequipped to face the challenges that are placed before them. That's not how God is as a parent. God is like the parent who is involved with his kids' projects. He helps them with them, but he's always ensuring that they are the ones doing the work and he's celebrating with them every step as they grow and learn over the course of their childhood. And note, it's important to to know that God's expectation is not perfection. God's expectation is faithfulness. God doesn't look at an an eight-year-old with no artistic experience and expect that their drawing is gonna be a polished masterpiece. Likewise, God doesn't look, like, look at the professional artists in her 40s and, ex- and just receive and accept work that's basically the quality of an inexperienced eight-year-old. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, God says. And here's the thing. Rather than being a daunting task that weighs down on us, this, I think, should be a great encouragement for us. When God makes you a new creation, his design, his intention is not just to yank you and drag you around, but to involve you in the process of the restoration of your own soul, even as he involves you in the restoration of the world around you. This does mean that the more mature you become, often the greater the extent and intensity of the temptations you face. And that's because the more practice you get, the more experienced you are, the more God puts your way the more responsibility he gives you. And responsibility usually comes along with great temptation. But the more practice you get, the better you become at discerning between good and evil and the more able you are to endure the temptations that come your way. Hebrews 5.14 uses the food metaphor, milk and solid food, to talk about this. It says, solid food is for the mature who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, constant discipline to distinguish between good and evil. Even as temptation strikes, and might be seeming to increase in intensity as you go along the course of your life, always remember that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And his intention for you is to grow in your ability to endure and to see the way out as he provides the way of escape. And underlying what Paul's talking about, of course, is this simple idea that what you do matters. And it seems simple, But if we're on the verge of making the same error as the Corinthian church, which I say that we are probably very much at a risk of doing in Western Christianity and even at Sojourn Galleria, we might be tempted to think that while what we do is important, it's not actually that important. We do this thing where we parse between things that are important in an ultimate sense and important in a this would be good but isn't absolutely necessary sense. And then we separate those two things altogether from each other saying that right thinking and right belief is of absolute importance. You gotta get that right. But right living, it's nice for those who can, but it's not necessary. And that just doesn't hold up in the face of the biblical text. If that's how we're thinking about this kind of thing, let Paul correct us. Beware, lest on account of your so-called knowledge you think you stand, but the way you live your life actually is leading you towards falling. The apostle James says it quite clearly. Faith without works is dead. True faith always shows itself in our works as God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul here agrees, essentially saying, God is faithful by his grace and it is him working 
in you walking with you as you run the race of disciplined endurance so as to win the prize. What you do matters, Paul is saying. And think of it this way, just as we were created in the image of God to be active in the world, stewarding the world that God had given us for his glory, even though we are sinners in a world marred by sin, we are still active agents as God has created us to be. And our actions still have real effects in the present in a way that echoes into eternity. And because this is true, because it is true that what we do actually matters and can affect real change for the better inside ourselves and inside the world around, it's unsurprising that Paul goes on to explain that this cuts both ways. Due to time, I'm not gonna get to talk about verses 14 through 22 the way that I'd like to, Um, but essentially here's how Paul closes this passage. He says in verse 14, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry. In other words, Paul says, get out of those pagan festivals. Get away from it. Flee from it. Don't even meddle with it, thinking that you're strong enough to stand. At the end, he says, do you think you're stronger than our Lord? Just get away from it. Um, When you worship, Paul's point in that text is when you worship, you experience a real participation in spiritual community with whom you find yourselves. And even, this is true, even if it's not God-centered worship. As Paul says, verse 18, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? In verse 21, Paul kind of closes his argument by saying, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Participating in these idolatrous feasts is more than just eating food. It is spiritual participation and communion with a cultic idolatrous practice. And really, it's like marriage is one way to think about it, is what Paul is saying. Many people throughout the history of humanity have sought to justify having a mistress or some side affair as not being that big of a deal. Many say you're married to your spouse as long as you don't get married to this other person. And as long as you remain intimately engaged with your spouse, this side fling should be just fine, not that bad. What does Paul say earlier in this letter? He says, that's ridiculous. He says, every time you lie with another person who's not your spouse, you experience a union that is completely incompatible with your marriage. If you do that even once, Paul says earlier, you jeopardize your entire marriage. Similarly here, Paul is saying that when you share a table with idol worshipers and their cultic feasts, you are in essence communing intimately with a foreign woman. Paul's saying idolatry is adultery against God and against your Christian community, those who God has united you with. You're playing the part of the unfaithful spouse in an affair. In doing so, Paul says, verse 22, provokes the Lord to jealousy. And he had just talked about a generation of Israelites who provoked the Lord to jealousy to illustrate what happens when you do that. And so Paul And that's how Paul ends the passage. He says, beware idolatry because it has the potential to drag you down and take you out. Therefore, flee from it. And that's how Paul ends the passage. What a passage. Let me close with just three points of application very briefly. First, even though Paul is talking about pagan feasts with which you and I probably have no connection, like I said, let us not lose the thrust of what God might be saying to us through this passage. There's a few questions for you. What is God using this text to invite you into with respect to growing in faithfulness? Is God calling out idolatry in your heart? Ways in which you have taken good things and perverted them towards your own selfish pursuits. 
Is it your money and your bank accounts? Is it your next raise? Is it sex? Are you engaging with pornography? Are you engaged in the habit of indulging in fantasies about the people who walk by you? Are you having an affair right now? Is it your time, whether at home, on the couch, watching television, even spending time with the people you love? What are those good things that you're twisting and making ultimate? Whenever you take something and make it ultimate, which often happens just that way by perverting it and using it for our own selfish fulfillment, that thing becomes an idol. And we are no less in danger with ours than the Corinthians were with their engagement in cultic festivals. So let's flee from idolatry in earnest, brothers and sisters. What if we, right, with our temptations to idol worship, were like an alcoholic who decided to forego alcohol before his life fell apart? Right? What if we as a people of God fled from idolatry in that way before things fell apart? Let's pursue it together. Last question, what are you pursuing that helps fight the temptation to fall into idolatry? One thing that I, that I think is clear when Paul talks, I know we didn't talk about this in verses 14 through 22, but clearly important for Paul is communion with the people of God. So here's a question. How do you view communion with the saints? What role do you see the church playing in your life? Is it a peripheral concern for you? Does it support you in your pursuit of something else? Or is it the central focal point of your life where you find yourself plugged into the vine that is Christ at the local church? When you miss the Sunday gathering, do you see it as not a big deal? Or does every time you have to miss a Sunday gathering cause you to pause and consider the implications of refraining from the table with your brothers and sisters and your Lord who is present there with you? Communion with the saints, pursuing right communion is a great way to fight idolatry. Let us not miss the thrust of Paul's warning in this passage. Let him work in your heart. Let this passage correct any possible misunderstandings of the Christian life, that what you do doesn't matter. Right? And, and finally, Paul in verse 13 says this thing. He says, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And I wanna give you this picture. How is, I want you to think about this. How is it that God knows our ability as we face temptation? How is it that, God, that Paul can write that to say truthfully that God will not place anything in front of you that is beyond your ability to endure? How can Paul say that? There's a passage in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, where the writer of the Hebrews explains what Christ did for us. He said, Jesus, that's, that's the passage where, that identifies Jesus as the great high priest. He says, we have a, this great high priest who's passed the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. And it says this, it says, Jesus who gave himself for you was tempted every way as we are and yet was without sin. So when Paul says, there's no temptation that has overcome you that isn't common to man, what he has in view here is there is, a, there is one incredibly important man who experienced every temptation that you and I face, knows exactly their extent, intimately. He struggled with those temptations and yet he was without sin. Paul, under, undergirding his encouragement in this passage is the view of your savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you, who knows intimately the struggles that we face. And rather than being all done with humanity and saying, all right, that's it, y'all are on your own. He entered into our suffering, entered into our temptations, entered into our, suffer, our struggle. 
and said, I'm gonna walk in this with you. I'm gonna work in this with you. I'm gonna die for you to pay the price for your sins that you have committed and that you haven't even committed yet so that I can invite you into a relationship and we can walk together towards greater and greater faithfulness. Christ gave himself for you and he knows you. Don't think for a moment that those words are just ink on paper. God knows your temptation. He truly will not put anything in front of you that you're unable to endure and he will always be with you in that moment, providing you with the way of escape saying, come, come to me rather than that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning, for each other and for your word. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, uh, for ministering to us by your spirit, for giving us your word. Thank you for hard passages in the Bible, Lord, that, that, that force us to think. Thank you on a personal note for, for making me sit in this text this week. I pray, Lord, that this word is a word of encouragement. I pray that we don't just blow past the warning that Paul would have us heed. I pray, Lord, that that you would encourage us this morning. It's a wonderful thing to feel like we're a part of something. We know from experience that being a part of a relationship where nothing is expected of us makes us feel useless and unwanted. But being a part of a relationship where our work, our input, our opinions are valued is really what we were created for. We were created for intimate participatory relationship. And thank you that in Christ, you have made it possible for us to be back into this participatory relationship. Help us, Lord, to flee from idolatry. Help us to dig into the community that you've placed around us in our neighborhood parishes, to confess when we need to confess, regularly, honestly, confidently, trusting that when we confess, you are faithful and just to wash over us with merciful forgiveness. We love you, Lord. Minister to us, weave the truth in this word into our hearts. Cause any untruth from my words to fall away by your grace, Lord that we might know you more and trust in you more. In Jesus' name, amen.